So this evening, I'm well aware that we have both a business meeting and that there is some kind of game happening. I don't follow football at all, so I actually didn't even know today was Super Bowl Sunday until like two weeks ago. So I'm well aware that I'm competing with some things, but I do want to share with you a quick uh, devotional thought from the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you'd turn in your copies of the scriptures to that. And we'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 19 and read all the way down through verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, starting at verse 1. The Bible reads, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. And spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant Torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. 
I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray. Lord, this grand and even mysterious text of Scripture is recorded for us in your holy word for a purpose. And I pray that as we examine this text briefly, that you would be exalted and that your people would be encouraged. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elijah is one of the more intriguing prophets, and the one story that is one of my favorites in his life is found in the previous chapter where he has this showdown at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Ahab is believing the prophets of Baal under the influence of his wife Jezebel. They're listening to all of the, the negative influences in their lives, and Israel is at this point choosing Baal repeatedly. And Elijah is earnestly and zealously defending the view that all of Israel should abandon Baal and worship God. And there's this great showdown at the Mount of Carmel where basically Elijah ends up laughing and making fun of these prophets who have all been cutting themselves and dancing all day long and praying out to their God to respond to them because the the battle was basically two altars and whichever God responded by bringing down God to respond. And Elijah just, just, I just love it. He's kind of sarcastic saying, hey, I don't know if he can hear you. <laughs> try, try talk a little louder. He's probably busy. He might be sleeping. Who knows what's going on? You just need to try a little harder maybe. And after all day long, trying to get Baal to respond to them, Elijah says, all right, my turn. And he prepares the altar very carefully He digs a moat around the altar and fills it with buckets upon buckets upon buckets of water, dousing the entire pile of rocks of the altar, dousing the entirety of the wood, dousing the sacrificed animal on it, virtually making it impossible, seemingly from the eyes of the humans around him, to have it catch fire at all. I mean, not even a spark would light it. And then Elijah simply prays to God and says, let your people know that you are indeed the God of Israel. And God responds with fire from heaven that consumes the entirety of the sacrifice. It licks up and dries up all of the water and all the people at the sight of the manifestation of the majestic glory of God fall flat on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah kills all of 
the prophets of Baal. What ends up happening, however, after that is that Ahab goes back to Jezebel and talks to her, tells her everything that has happened, and Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, you're a dead man. If you're not dead by this time tomorrow, then the same thing ought to happen to me because I am carrying out this threat. Which leads Elijah to go from the mountaintop experience of Mount Carmel to experience one of the greatest illustrations of depression. And you'll excuse me for a moment. My phone is literally speaking to me right now and I can't take it. Also, my shoe is falling apart as well. (laughs) This is just going quite well. So Elijah's on the run and he leaves his servant. He's hungry. God displays in chapter 19 and verses 4 and following how he cares for them, gives him food, and how with that food and drink, he lasts for 40 days on that one meal. But it still doesn't take away the depression and discouragement that he feels. Until finally, in verse 9, he gets to the point where he hears the word of the Lord coming to him. And in verse 9, the Lord asks him a question that might seem odd to us. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God is not unaware of why Elijah is there. It's not asking, what are you doing here, as in I'm not sure what's going on. Please explain to the omniscient God because he doesn't know. It's more of an indicting question. You're supposed to be doing the work of proclaiming my name to the people of Israel. Why are you not doing it? Why are you here? And Elijah in verse 10 defends himself and says, Look, I have been zealous for you. I have been faithfully proclaiming your message. And your people keep rejecting it. And all of the prophets that have sent before me have been killed. And your people have torn down your altars, and I'm the last one left. There's nobody else. And they're trying to kill me too. So what do you expect me to do, God? I'm running for my life. I think in some ways, Elijah had the view of God that we tend to have as well. A lot of times you and I look at life and we think, wow, It's normal. My life is really kind of boring, honestly. There's no grandiose view of the majesty of God with fire falling down from heaven. There's no handwriting in the wall like in in the book of Daniel. There's no burning, fiery uh, bush that's happening, but it's, it's not being consumed like Moses saw. There's no ten great plagues that are happening like Moses experienced in Egypt. And we see in Scripture all of these grandiose manifestations of God's working and assume that's God's M.O. The only time God is working is when there's some kind of great and grand and glorious thing that's happening. In fact, when you look at like insurance documents and if your house is being insured, one of the things that will be mentioned in there is your house will be insured under the circumstances of an act of God whether it be like a hurricane or a a tornado or a, a storm that knocks a tree over on your house, they refer to them as acts of God. Why? Because the assumption is that only big, great things 
is the way that God moves and works. You and I tend to think the same thing. If there's some kind of miracle where somebody has been, for example, given the diagnosis that they have a disease, they shouldn't recover from it, and yet it turns out they're healed from it. Wow, God must have done that. There is a great, grand expression and manifestation of his majestic work. But then when you drove safely from your house to church this evening, we didn't think twice about it. That was me. I just was a careful driver. I made sure not to hit the guy in front of me. A semi that was driving 55 and a 70, you know, I didn't, I didn't run into him. And so I think Elijah had experienced this grand vision of the majesty of God on Mount Carmel and began to assume that when he didn't see it happening again, that God had virtually abandoned him and his people. And we can sometimes think the same thing. So what does God do? God says to him in verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The presence of God is a terrifying thing in Scripture. When Moses and the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai and they see the expression of God's presence, a cloud and thunderings and lightnings coming down, the people say, you go talk to God. I, we cannot talk to him and live. It was a fearful thing to them. And when Moses communes with God on Mount Sinai and is given the Ten Commandments and so on and so forth, he comes down and his face is radiating the refracted glory of God. So much so that even though Moses is not God, the refracted glory of God radiating from his face caused the people to say, veil yourself. We cannot see you. So here, Elijah, who knows his Old Testament scriptures as far as the Torah goes, like the back of his hand, who has seen the expression of God's glory with fire coming down from heaven on a sacrifice, is invited by that God to behold and stand before his presence. I wonder what was going through his mind when he hears that. He goes out and it says, Behold, the Lord passed by. And a strong wind, a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Moses had asked God to see him, and God says, No man can see me and live. Now Elijah is invited by God to view an expression of himself. And what he sees is a wind that passes through the mountain, violently so. And rocks, something that most of us in our natural estate, apart from any kind of tools that we have, would, ta- would say is something that's unbreakable. And yet the wind itself breaks the rocks in pieces before the presence of God. And yet, the author of First Kings says, the Lord was not in the wind. Which means, whatever that wind was, it had to have been something majestic and powerful and beyond anything our minds could imagine. 
But God says, that was the wind. That wasn't me. And then the next thing it says, after the wind, an earthquake. Perhaps nothing could instill the fear of God in a person than when you experience an earthquake, the ground shaking, the buildings feeling as if they're like a, a, a tower of cards that could be knocked down in a moment. And Elijah experiences this earthquake, but again, the Lord was not in the earthquake. Both of these expressions of God's presence, and yet we're told that wasn't him. In verse 12, after the earthquake comes a fire. And I just want to know, what did that look like? If you've ever seen videos of these wildfires that happen, such as uh, some that have happened in California or, or up in Canada even, you see that and you think, the, the devastation of that. Elijah sees a fire, much like Moses saw the burning bush. Again, a manifestation in the past of the presence of God. And yet again, the Lord was not in the fire. If you and I were invited by God in the same way to go up to the highest hill here in Findlay, and God were to manifest himself and show aspects of his glory on display, and there was a great rushing wind that split that hill in half, if the rocks were being split in two, if you saw an, or felt an earthquake toppling the trees and the houses and even this building, if you saw a raging fire flowing through, you and I would be instilled with fear. Or at least I would be. Maybe you guys are braver than me. Maybe I'm just a coward, but I would be terrified if I saw that. But the text of Scripture does not say that Elijah feared. The last thing that happens in verse 12 is after the fire, the King James and New King James say, a still, small voice. Some of the other translations that you may have in front of you might say something like a sound of gentle blowing or a gentle whisper. This is not necessarily the way Elijah would expect to hear the voice of God. And most of us, when we read in the Psalms about the voice of God thunders, and you listen to a thunderstorm, you hear the booming clash of the thunder, and you see the lightning, it makes us think of the transcendent, something that is bigger and greater than ourselves. And it instills in us a fear. That's why some children fear when they hear thunder in the evenings. Some of us adults do, especially if there's a lightning strike very close. But what instills fear in Elijah? In verse 13, it says, So when Elijah heard it, that still, small voice, he wrapped his face in his mantle. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, he watched it all. But the moment he heard the still, small voice, he hides his face. There was something about the voice of God 
as gentle and quiet as it may have been, that instilled in him a reverential fear. And suddenly a voice came to him in verse 13 asking again, Elijah, what are you doing here? The rest of this account here, as you see, is Elijah in verse 14 repeats exactly what he said in verse 10. And God tells him, I want you to do three things. I want you to go anoint Hazael, the king of Aram. I want you to anoint Jehu, the king over Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha, the prophet, in your place. Those are the three things. Those, that's your homework as, your pro, as a prophet. I want you to go do those three things. And then, Elijah, I want you to remember this in verse 18. You keep saying you're alone. You think you're the only one who's been able to do my work. I want you to know that in Israel, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God responds to Elijah in this intriguing way. And I'll be honest with you, I was thinking as I was looking at this text, other than trying to instill in us this awe of who God is, how do you preach this? What do you say about this text of Scripture and with Elijah? And so I want to share with you as I close just a couple things about what I think we can learn. And first of all, what I want us to understand is that God's moving is not always in grandiose, majestic ways. That's the first thing. God's moving is not always in grandiose, majestic ways. In theology, they refer to this as providence, that God works through ordinary means to still accomplish his goal. We take for granted those ordinary means. Oftentimes, we assume that because we don't see any kind of grand, grandiose thing happening, God must not be in it. But the reality is, is God is. And I think he displayed that when he showed that there was an earthquake and a wind and a fire, but he wasn't in those. And it's not to say that the, the God who is omnipresent wasn't there, but it wasn't what he was trying to communicate to Elijah. He wanted Elijah to understand that just because you assume I'm going to work in this grand majestic way doesn't mean that I still am not as powerfully working in the ordinary things. And let me illustrate it by simply whispering. And the presence of God in a whisper itself is enough to instill a reverential awe and fear. God is doing the same in your life. God is gently working in your life through ordinary providential means. Like I said, you drove here safely this evening. And in one sense, it's because you had the good sense to drive carefully, hopefully. But in another sense, it's because God, in his kindness and mercy, protected you. You have taken breath after breath throughout the course of this service. And it's all because God has granted you your next breath. All of these are things we take for granted. But God is still moving, even if we don't see it happening in grandiose, majestic ways. Number two, I believe that the presence of God provokes reverence even when the manifestation of his power and presence seems insignificant. If I were to whisper to you, I don't think you'd be intimidated. In fact, if you think of people who are in conflict and they are arguing with each other, what tends to happen? 
your voice tends to elevate. You start to talk louder. You start to talk faster. Most people are not whispering in anger, whispering in their argument, unless they're doing it because everybody else is asleep in the house. (laughs) It's natural for us to assume that there is great power and that that power in the elevated voice will instill or some kind of submission. It'll still power and, and promote that you are in control of the situation. And yet God with Elijah whispers. And Elijah immediately covers his face. The presence of God provokes reverence even when the manifestation of his power and presence seems insignificant. Why do I say that? Because I think, honestly, we take for granted the presence of God. As Christians, the only reason we can come before God is because of Christ. The reason why we can come boldly before the throne of grace is because Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for us. I think when we get to heaven, when we see the gentleness of our God, the kindness with which he treated us, We will run to him. We will be grateful to him. But I still think that we will have a reverential awe for who he is. So the still small voice here that Elijah experiences is meant to show him and us that God is just as powerful whether he expresses his majesty in deep, terrible ways as when he does so as the gentle shepherd. He's just as powerful, just as much as God as who he has always been. And I'm thankful that our God is gentle. And I'm thankful that we can call him Abba, Father. And I'm thankful that Jesus invites us to come to him because he is gentle and meek and lowly and that he'll give us rest for our souls. But that gentleness is still a strength that he has. And we as Christians should take great joy and comfort in that, knowing that we can come to him because of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, it is our privilege to call you Father, to come before you, and to know that your power is still on display every moment of every day, that each event and moment in our life, however insignificant it may seem, Behind it is the hand of a gentle yet powerful God. I pray that you would move in us to see those things and to respond with praise and adoration and worship and that we would magnify in our lives everything about who you are. For we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.